Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 29 of Contemplating Life. It's been a busy week for me. I don't have time to write a completely new episode from scratch. It's already Sunday, and it takes me a day to record, edit, and upload everything by the end of the day. But I do have a story to share that originally appeared in my blog, and it's relevant to our current series. So I did a quick rewrite of that last night. I think you'll enjoy it. It was the second semester of my junior year at Northwest High School, and my regular English teacher needed some time off for some reason. We had a substitute teacher named Mrs. Allen. When she wasn't substitute teaching, she was a professional writer. She claimed to have published several short stories, and I think some poetry. I recall discussing with my friend Dennis what a wonderful teacher Mrs. Allen was. Several people had said they wish they could have had her full time. But Dennis and I concluded that it would be a shame because only one class at a time would have the benefit of her skills. By serving as a substitute, she could spread her joy around to more people. Whenever Mrs. Allen came in for an extended period, she would throw out the curriculum and give us a writing assignment. This was the second time I had her as a substitute. The first time in my sophomore year, my teacher got married and took a week off. That time, we wrote her essays that were suggestions on married life. I wrote a humorous piece about how she should purchase fast food, take it out of the bags, put it on fancy plates, and serve it up as a gourmet meal. When the teacher returned from her honeymoon and read the stories, she had very nice things to say about my suggestions. She thought it was really funny. I don't recall why my teacher needed off during my junior year. Our assignment this time was to write a short story. Now there's an adage that says, write what you know. So I decided to write a bit of science fiction. That's the majority of what I read in those days, and it still is today. I stole the basic premise of the story. My dad had told me he had read a story or seen a movie somewhere where a guy got away with murder by stabbing someone with a sharpened icicle. The murder weapon had melted and evaporated, leaving no trace of the weapon or the fingerprints. I decided to steal the idea as the basis of my own little murder mystery story. Apparently the idea is more common than I thought it was in those days. I've done some Google searches today I did some Google searches today to attempt to identify the story my dad told me about all those years ago. I found there's a murder mystery role-playing game called The Icicle Twist, which I presume has something to do with stabbing someone with an icicle. IMDb has a keyword category of several films in which someone is stabbed with an icicle. But they're all more modern than what could have been the basis for what my dad told me. I've seen questions about a young adult novel from the 1980s, which is obviously after I was in high school, so that's not the origin. My best candidate is a 1925 story called The Tea Leaf by Edgar Jepson and Robert Eustace. In that story, someone was stabbed with an icicle in a steam room. I seem to recall my dad telling me that in the story he read, the murderer was caught because they found traces of soot in the wound, 
and somehow determined it had come from an icicle. And that wasn't the case in the Jepson Ustas story. I've linked that story and some other websites related to my research, including some answers to Quora inquiries that suggest it's actually happened. But then again, I'm not sure that someone replying to such a question is all that credible. There were no links to articles supporting the answer. If anyone knows of any stories, if anyone knows of any similar stories, either real or fiction, please send me a link. I'd like to know more about it. After doing this research, I'm now probably on someone's watch list for researching how to get away with the perfect murder. And so are you for listening to this podcast. <laughs> anyway, much of my deep appreciation of the short story form comes from reading Edgar Allan Poe, especially his classic short story, The Cask of Amontillado. I provided a link to the story in the description. The opening line of the story is, The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. That's the whole story in one sentence. Everything that follows is simply the details. It doesn't explain who Fortunato was in any detail. It doesn't say how he injured or insulted the narrator. It's just the story of how the narrator plotted and executed his revenge. He lures the victim into a basement wine cellar for a taste of Amontillado wine. Then he shoved him into an alcove, chained him to the wall, and sealed up the wall with bricks, burying him alive. This shocking and brutal ending is what most people remember about the story. They even did a version of that in the classic horror soap opera Dark Shadows in episode 442, when Barnabas lures Reverend Trask into the basement and then bricks him into an alcove. For me, the shocking ending wasn't nearly as interesting as that opening sentence. For me, that's the absolute essence and perfection of a short story. You grab them with a catchy opening sentence and then end with a big surprise. That's what I wanted to go for. So, back to my semi-plagiarized sci-fi murder mystery. We're going to commit the perfect murder by stabbing a guy with an icicle. This clearly had to be premeditated and well-planned in order to be a perfect murder. It's not a crime of passion, but rather a coldly calculated plot. <laughs> Emphasis on cold. You have to get someone to a place where you have an icicle handy. You have to prepare it to a sharp point and keep it cold until you can do the deed. While trying to craft my catchy opening sentence, I came up with the idea that committing the perfect murder was something that had been pursued ever since Cain slew Abel. Although I believe people are fundamentally good, there's always something inside us that tempts us to do violence against our perceived enemies. We've always been searching for the perfect murder. It's one of those eternal quests, like building a better mousetrap. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, what did I just say? My muse had spoken. I had my opening line. I had my hook 
that would tell the entire story in one sentence and draw you in to make you want to read more. I had my Amontillado-like opening line, which would read as follows. Man has always had two ambitions, to build a better mousetrap and to commit the perfect murder. I have done the latter to the man who did the former. That was my entire story in one sentence. Well, actually three, but certainly one short paragraph. Somebody will build that legendary better mousetrap. The only reason you'd want to kill such a person is that they somehow cheated you out of the honor of building it yourself. So the perpetrator and victim were former business partners. The victim cheated his partner, and that was the motive. The story is told in first person by the murderer as a revenge story in the same way that Amontillado was told. I already had my method to commit the perfect murder with the melting murder weapon. Now I had to build the better mousetrap. And that's where the science fiction elements come in. Our inventors used genetic engineering to create a virus that would be deadly to mice, but harmless to any other species. Apart from the big opening line, I also learned from Edgar Allan Poe the beauty and ingenuity of a plot twist, something shocking at the end of the story that gives the reader something unexpected. You grab them in the beginning, you lead them on a journey, and you have to end on a high note as well. I came up with that, but I won't spoil it for you yet. When I originally wrote this up for my blog in November 2020, I couldn't find a copy of this story. I didn't even remember the name of it. And naturally, I did not remember the name of the teacher. Seriously, you don't really think I remember the name of a substitute teacher 50 years later, do you? Even one as memorable as her. Two months later, I found that original manuscript in an old file folder, and I posted it on my blog. I've linked a PDF copy of the scanned manuscript in my own handwriting, complete with the teacher's notes and all of her circling my spelling errors. You can also see it in the YouTube version of this podcast. The version I present here is as it was written, with the spelling and punctuation corrected. I will now read you my short story, which I wrote for my English 6th class at Northwest High School, dated March 16, 1972. Then I'll tell you about what happened afterwards. The story is titled, Cold Chills. By Chris Young. Man has always had two ambitions to build a better mousetrap and to commit the perfect murder. I have done the latter to the man who did the former. David Brown was my victim. He had been a friend and business partner for some time until he dumped me from the company two months ago. We were in the pesticide business, and our main product was rat poison. Business had been slipping because of all the bad talk about pesticides polluting the environment. People would rather clean up the trash to get rid of the rats than to buy our poison. Then Dave came up with the answer. His formula affected only rats. It altered their chromosomes so that only male offspring were produced. In a generation, 
the rats would be extinct because there would be no females to reproduce. Dave put the product on the market the week after our partnership was legally dissolved. He had ruined me, and I had to return the favor. I once read a mystery story where a man was stabbed with a sharpened icicle. The murderer was never caught because no weapon was found. It melted away. The idea started out as just a wild notion. I didn't take myself seriously at first. Then, just to pass time, I started to work out details, but just to pass time. The longer I worked on my plan, the more it appeared possible. Also, as my plot started to gel, I grew more hateful each day towards my lost partner. I would look out my bedroom window and stare transfixed at the glistening spears growing downward from the eaves of my house. Then I did it. On the night of December 30th, I left my house and walked around the side and carefully snapped off an icicle. As I walked towards my car, I chipped off pieces with my pocket knife till there was a clean, sharp point. I left the heat off in my car so that the 10-degree weather would keep my weapon sharp. I knocked at the door with my icy weapon behind my back. Dave answered the door. Well, if it isn't Bob Johnson, my old partner, come on in. I tried to stay calm. Uh, I just want to let you know I've decided been foolish about holding a grudge against you for putting me out of business. He smiled. Well, now, isn't that sweet of you? Now tell me why you're really here. I slowly made my way over to him and patted him on the back. Well, let me tell you about it. My arms swung around with every ounce of force in my body. He dropped. I pitched my icy weapon into the fireplace and left without closing the door. I drove down the street, went into a bar, and got very drunk. The police questioned me and never suspected me after I told them our partnership had been dissolved. Three days later, I attended the funeral. I was the last person to leave the church. As I walked out, I stopped on the top step to watch the hearse drive away. I reached back to pull my collar up to shield myself from the cold wind when a cold, clear, crystal icicle fell from the eaves of the church and slid down my back. Page 13, Capital City Star, January 2nd, 1973. Robert C. Johnson died today in front of St. Peter's Catholic Church of a heart attack. He was attending the funeral of his former business partner, David R. Brown, who was mysteriously murdered earlier this week. So there it is. My first great work of science fiction, written over 50 years ago. I hope you enjoyed it. Mrs. Allen really loved the piece. She read several excerpts of some of the best stories in the class, but she started with mine. She heaped praise upon the story, especially focusing on the opening paragraph. She said to the class, I'm going to read you this opening paragraph. I want you to guess 
Which of your classmates wrote it? She read the paragraph, and more than one of my classmates identified it as mine. I don't know what it was about their opinion of me that led them to identify me, but I couldn't have been happier. Then she pointed out I had misspelled the word always, using two L's. and looked at me and said, You know better than that. I didn't have the heart to tell her. I really didn't. As you may recall from previous episodes, I'm a terrible speller. She concluded her review of my work by saying, no when to quit. She thought that the news item at the end was unnecessary. I guess I wasn't confident that the reader would know that the guy who killed someone with an icicle was also killed by an icicle. I've tried to apply that advice about knowing when to quit when I write other stories. But I think in essence, she was saying, just trust your audience to get your point. That was the real lesson. At the end of the semester, they give you a folder with all your homework in it so you can review your grades. But they want you to turn it back in so you can't sell your term paper or book report to someone next year. I kept my copy of the story and turned back in the folder with everything else in it. As I was reviewing the story just now, I probably would have rewritten several sentences, fixed some grammatical issues suggested by Grammarly. The two-month timeline in the story doesn't make much sense. There's some other things that need fixing. In retrospect, I probably should have switched from first person to third person while I'm describing the icicle falling off the church. After all, how does a guy who's dead write that story? Overall, I think it's pretty damn good for a 15-year-old author. I'm still quite proud of it, 50 years later. Mrs. Allen's notes included, Very clever story. Good use of words. Good introduction. The grade was A-. On the last page, she wrote, I like the irony of fate ending. Then she attached a handwritten note as follows. Chris, this is a great story. You have a natural knack for telling a tale. This one is suspenseful and well-organized. Your sentences and phrases are well-formed. The better mousetrap gimmick is worth repeating or at least mentioning a second time. About the title, Why Not a Partnership Dissolves. Of course, using a play on the word dissolved. As for myself, I prefer the story to end with our partnership had been dissolved. Knowing when to quit is a neat trick to learn. Many thanks for sharing your story. You have the potential for a selling author. I remember her saying to me in person that I could have shortened the ending and repeated the comment, know when to quit. But I seem to recall in person she simply suggested leaving off the news article and ending it with an icicle down the back. But her notes say that it should have ended after the police questioned me. On the other hand, she liked the ironic ending. So that speaks for at least leaving the irony and perhaps cutting the news article. Mrs. Allen encouraged me to continue writing fiction, 
but I never did so until a few years ago. I've already talked about my successes writing nonfiction, but for a variety of reasons, I didn't think I could write fiction, despite her encouragement. Let's be honest, I stole the plot from something my dad told me about that he had read. Just because I know how to tell a story doesn't mean I know how to make one up. At some point in future episodes, I'll talk about my next attempt to write fiction, which didn't begin until August 2020. The short version of that story is, I've written 10 pieces in the past three years. I've collected over 50 rejection emails from magazines and websites. As I've explained before, I'm currently enrolled in a writing seminar. Now, I've written another story that grew out of that class. Again, it's a somewhat science fiction murder mystery. It doesn't have quite the catchy opening paragraph as Cold Chills, but I still like it. It's a much longer piece, just under 10,000 words. After I get some more feedback from friends and family, I'll start submitting it, and hopefully I can put an end to this streak of rejection letters. If not, I'll simply have to wait for my muse to inspire me again. Until then, I'll keep writing biographical nonfiction with other commentary. Next week, I'll discuss more events of my senior year. As I teased at the end of previous episodes, upcoming topics include a senior prom, another town hall meeting, and more stories about my mentor, Mr. Irwin. I'll go on an actual date with, still not going to tell you who, and I'll relive the joys and fears of graduation. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and any other benefits I might come up with down the road. Although I have some financial struggles, I'm not really in this for the money. Still, every little bit helps. Many thanks to my Patreon supporters. Your support helps pay for the writing seminar that I attend. But I mostly appreciate it because it shows how much you appreciate what I'm doing. Your support means more to me than I know how to express. Even if you cannot provide financial support, please post links and share this podcast on social media so I can grow my audience. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find this podcast. We'll see you next week as we continue contemplating life. Until then, fly safe, everyone.